When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From Key West, Florida, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Eric Cohn, filling in for the still on paternity leave Matt Singer. So if you don't already know Eric's work, and I feel like most of you probably do, uh, he's a former colleague of mine, deputy editor and chief critic for IndieWire. He also co-hosts a podcast of his own with Ann Thompson called Screen Talk, which you should definitely check out for all of its insights into the uh, continuing developments in the film industry. Uh, So we're here at the Key West Film Festival. Um, I've dragged him away from the sunshine screenings to record this podcast, but we're still kind of in the sunshine. And so any ambient noise, birds chirping, water flowing from the nearby fountain. You just have to deal with that as atmosphere. Um, as a thank you and punishment for our guest hosts, while Matt is away, I've been forcing them to choose the title we review on the episode. I said choose anything, as long as it's streaming. And Eric opted for... Mudbound from D. Reese. It's a period drama about two families working on a stretch of Mississippi farmland in the 40s that was picked up by Netflix after premiering at Sundance back in January of this year, where I saw it. It's where I saw it, too. Uh, Yeah, Mudbound is being looked at as the first real kind of test for Netflix in terms of how the company is going to handle a maybe Oscar movie. Uh, And it's also directed by Dee Reese of Pariah and Bessie, who, if any of that Oscar stuff really works out, could make history as the first black female director to, uh, you know, get nominated even for for Best Director. Um, So inspired by that fact, uh, we'll also be offering some streaming recommendations of other movies directed by black women. But first, let's talk Mudbound. Violence is part and parcel of country life. I learned how to stitch up a bleeding wound, load and fire a shotgun. My hands did these things, but I was never easy in my mind. Way down in the water. I held his heartbeat in my head. Way down in the water. All that time he was gone, I only prayed for him. Over there, I was a liberator. People lined up in the streets waiting for us. Sometimes I actually miss it. Yeah, me too. I'm coming back from the fire. You're the one always talking about. I own and I own parts of the only way to get up from under that foot. Crawling back from the side. I don't want you working for them. I won't be working for them. I'll be working for us. Coming back from the fire. Went off to fight for my country to come back and find ahead and change a bit. I don't know what they let you do over there, but you in Mississippi now. You use the back door. 
So our standard practice here on Film Spotting streaming video unit is that you vote on what we're going to talk about for our main review. Uh, but with Matt out caring for his newborn daughter, I've been running wild here on the podcast and letting our guest hosts pick the main review. Uh, Eric went with Mudbound, which is a very timely choice given that it just had its premiere on Netflix on November 17th, just a few days before this episode uh, is going live. It's the third feature from Dee Reese, who made a splash in 2011 with her semi-autobiographical debut, Pariah. Mudbound's a more sprawling film than that one, an ensemble movie about these two families who end up sharing this Mississippi farmland uh, in the years around World War II. The McAllens, played by Jason Clark, Carrie Mulligan, Garrett Hedlund, and Jonathan Banks are a white family, and they move to the farm when Henry, played by Jason Clark, purchases the land on an apparent whim that he doesn't really tell his family about with it before moving them. The Jacksons, who are played with Rob Morgan, Mary J. Blige, uh, and Jason Mitchell as the oldest of their children, are renters, uh, and they're black, who dare to dream about owning land, something that is very difficult uh, for black families at that time. And the film is about how the two families interact over the years, and in particular, how the dynamic changes when, J- when the oldest sons go off to war and come back with more in common than a community in the midst of the Jim Crow South really wants to tolerate. So Eric, this film, uh, in a weird way, when it premiered at Sundance, had to contend with the shadow of Nate Parker's The Birth of a Nation. Not that they actually had much in common beyond the superficial. They both came from black filmmakers and they both deal with race and they're both historical dramas. But, uh, you know, it got a really warm reception at Sundance and then it took a while to get picked up. You know, Netflix came in and paid a lot of money for it, but it also, it took a few days. It was not your traditional Sundance story where everyone sees the film, standing ovation, and then everyone rushes off to bid on it. Um, and people see this really as like a kind of maybe a little cynical uh, Oscar bid for Netflix. So my question for you is, well, one, like, how unfair is it to <laughs> have this other film lurking over your unrelated movie? But also, like, do you see this movie as mostly Oscar bait or is there more to it than that? Well, one, yes, it's definitely unfair. It's, a, it's supremely unfair for any movie to be put in the shadow of Birth of a Nation, which I thought was overhyped as filmmaking and also uh, very irresponsible on the part of the studio that spent so much money on it. Uh, In this particular case, I think that this movie is traditional Oscar bait in the most positive sense of the word. It's it's an old-school period piece that could have been made 50 years ago if Hollywood wasn't so racist that it didn't make movies with black directors. I mean, the great thing about Mudbound is that it isn't breaking any rules. It's just filling in a gap in some ways. You know, it's this really beautiful story about a black family and a white family both trying to kind of take control of farmland and find their place in uh, this post-war society in which they're kind of mutually alienated. I mean, there are no rich people in this movie, notably. You have hateful racist people and you have uh, you know, a, a struggling black family and you have some good-natured people on both sides trying to find common ground. But what's kind of fascinating about it is that they're all kind of marginalized. And so what the movie's doing, I think, in a really brilliant kind of way is finding a, a, a common language for them to speak in the central relationship between these two characters, one black and one white, that were in World War II together. What I think is kind of remarkable about it is that while I was excited to see the movie because of Dee Reese, I thought Pariah was an extraordinary 
great piece of filmmaking, I wasn't prepared for the movie itself, which is just an incredible scope. And, um, you know, it's not my favorite kind of movie personally. It's not the sort of thing I would necessarily seek out. But I do think that it is a necessary corrective. It's, and it's kind of remarkable that Netflix went for it, that they spent over $12 million, still less than Fox Searchlight splurged <laughs> on Birth of a Nation. But but it's, it's a reasonable way to kind of provide some sort of alternate narrative to the kinds of movies that should be made on this scale. And, and if uh, it gets some Oscar traction out of that in a year when you also have several other women directors in the conversation, I think there is a nice combination of both quality and progressiveness that comes together there. So I'm all about that. I do feel like there's more to this movie than just also like it being awardsy, that it, than it looking prestigious. Like it's not a movie about... Like, it's not a movie that sets out to be about racism or about the Jim Crow South or about, uh, like, the KKK who emerge late in this film in a really kind of horrifying sequence. It is about these two families and, like, racism and poverty are the structures in which they live. You know, like, they are not the focus, but they affect everything that happens in the movie. And I appreciated the ways in which it wasn't driven by those things. It was, those were just elements that shaped how these characters live, you know? And it is also, like, it is a true ensemble film. There, Jason Mitchell, I think, is, like, if you're going to pick one person who kind of is a standout, you know, and he's come out of straight out of Compton, he really, uh, I think he, he does some really good work here, but it deliberately spreads itself over all of these characters and doesn't stick with one point of view. I'm curious about what you think about that. Like the, because it's, I know it's kind of a divisive thing that this movie hops between points of view and also heavily, especially in the beginning, uses their voiceover to kind of fill in their different perspectives. Too much? Not enough? It's a little too busy. It's definitely a little too busy, and, and I had an issue with the voiceovers in the first act, but it settles into its own groove with time. There, there are characters I was certainly less invested in, like Carrie Mulligan is this sort of disgruntled housewife of sorts. It's just not the essence of the movie. I think you could make a good argument that she's sort of one of the people less relevant to what Mudbound is really about, and there are a few other examples of that, whereas Jason Mitchell's characters really, and, the, the, and Garrett Hedlund, they're the essence of the movie, and then different kinds of characters come up, like Mary J. Blige, who's this kind of matriarch of sorts for her family, and there's little hints of who, who she is and what she comes from, the, the, the notion of blackness that she's experienced over the years. So there's little hints of, of things from different perspectives that come up throughout the film that stitch out this larger tapestry. They don't always work, but I think the the overall design does come together. And what's interesting about it is that it is a, a big ensemble piece, and that's so hard to pull off that that kind of storytelling has largely receded from American filmmaking. I mean, just getting this kind of star power, not that they're all A-listers, but they're name actors in this kind of a drama that's not breaking any rules is really hard to pull off. And that kind of Malikian sense of wonder and poetic landscapes and stuff, like that kind of thing, you know, it feels like a satire of itself when it's done really terribly. But Dee Reese is so confident in the material that I think she really pulls it together by the end. I will say, I think I like Carrie Mulligan's character and I like uh, Mary J. Blige's character, I think, more than you do. I, I One of the things I really like about this movie that I think is actually kind of quietly radical is the way in which it continually... 
reminds you of the ways in which these characters kind of intersect and have things in common and then don't at all. You know, I think that when you see Carrie Mulligan and she's, it starts with her and she's this character who is a kind of on the verge of spinsterhood when this man offers to marry her and it, she's mostly grateful to him. Uh, she accepts a lot of his dictates. You know, a lot of the movie is just about how she... She, these are ingrained in her that you just go where your husband tells you to you kind of uh, you listen he doesn't need to ask you things and I think that like the ways in which like the two women on occasion like have common understandings based on like being mothers or being wives and then but then like race is something between them or the ways in which Garrett Hedlund and Jason Clark uh, you know, suddenly have war and PTSD between them as like this common ground, but are also black and white in uh, an extremely kind of racist community that really doesn't want to see them hanging out. Like, I, I feel like this is a movie in some ways about intersectionality uh, or about like those kind of different, the different identities we wear and the ways they allow us to connect to people and also are kept apart from people. Uh, I do think that like there is too much talking <laughs> like in the beginning. There's a lot of voiceover and sometimes the movie feels like it's almost spilling out over the edges. Like there's it can't be contained by just like this feature. There's so much there, but I don't know. I did like. I, there's something about the hopping, the hopping perspectives that I think is like actually pretty remarkable. Um, what did you think of Garrett Hedlund? He is someone I find often very bland on screen, but I feel like in this, this is like a sign of life. Yeah, a sign of life is a good way to put it. I mean, he's not the standout. <laughs> no. He's more like the stand-in for a certain kind of role that you need here. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, that's usually the black character in so many American movies, right? So it's it's kind of nice to see that it's sort of like the, the somewhat underwritten part for the somewhat underwhelming actor. He's the white dude, but he he's, you know, he's got a certain kind of conundrum that he has to get across without having the words to get across. You know, he's raised by a racist KKK guy. Spoiler alert. But it does I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not one really of the Yeah, Jonathan it's not. Banks is like, it, Jonathan yes. Banks is, is pretty evil in this movie. And so the the very notion of somebody being raised into that culture and, be, and being able to somehow transcend those limitations, not because of any kind of ideological conviction, just because of the, the pure kind of empathy that he senses from a fellow veteran is something that I think he, he pulls across pretty well. I mean, it's a very well-directed performance and we don't talk enough about that that you could see great actors not doing much in a movie and it's usually because they, they just haven't been given direction. That's how you can tell. You're like, oh, I really like that person. Why are they staring blankly and, and, and not, you know, emoting or or why are they overplaying this thing? It's, it's because, I mean, you look at Woody Allen movies and the performances are all over the place because he doesn't often give them direction. Here, Garrett Hedlund has been directed towards exactly what this movie needs him to do. So he's kind of a prop, but he's a solid prop. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that, like, uh, maybe that's it. Like, you see him spark to life because he's being given the right direction to be like, you're this kind of reckless charmer. Uh, We've never been able to depend on you. But also, uh, the room kind of, like, everyone looks at you when you're in the room. Um, Yeah, you're right. It's a type. But I I was like, I appreciated it, you know, because there were a lot of people in this cast. Like, Carrie Mulligan, we get pretty used to her doing good work. And also good work in this kind of sad girl vein that she's like... Like revisiting here, uh, Jason Clark. I think has played a lot of characters like this. These kind of slightly scary. Uh, I don't know, like characters that are in authority a lot. Um, I think he's a really interesting actor. Uh, but you know, I think the fact that that Devious coaxes such a like I think a kind of 
solid performance out of Mary J. Blige, who is not someone who's done a lot of acting, uh, you know, is like uh, uh, this uh, music legend, uh, you know, and, and, and such an uncharacteristic role. Like you go from someone who is extremely glamorous to someone who is playing like every character in this movie is caked in mud all the time. I do think that speaks to her, her directing. Uh, and I think that's a really good point that you, you brought it up. Do you think that this movie actually has Oscar potential? Like, do you think, I mean, it's an uphill battle in general. It's a weird year, but also Netflix, people don't really necessarily know what to do with Netflix yet. Do you think that this movie is one we're going to be talking about at the end of the year? I mean, it's getting close to the end of the year, so yes. But what's really interesting is that Netflix is a ba- it's basically trying to beat the film industry into submission. It's taken a couple of years, but they're turning things around. I mean, when they did Beasts of No Nation a few years ago, it wasn't necessarily the, the easiest sell, this really dark war drama, but they didn't quite know how to release it right. They partnered with a theatrical distributor, and it bombed in theaters. And when, you, when the story around your movie is that nobody went to see it, that hurts Oscar prospects. They're not dwelling on that. It's going to get a qualifying run, but mostly they're just messaging to people that here's this great movie on Netflix and you should check it out. And a lot of people are mobilizing behind it, certainly the black film community. But as much as the influence that has, I think there is just a broader sense that this movie is just a really strong piece of filmmaking. It feels like it's a studio film and it's a kind of studio film that's been celebrated by Hollywood over the years. There's a lot of visibility for it and there's a lot of goodwill for both Dee Reese, who's been a rising star for a really long time. I mean, there's several years in between this and Pariah, which a lot of people saw and liked. And um, there's also a lot of goodwill for Mary J. Blige in the supporting actress category, given the fact that it is a really strong performance, a really vulnerable role. She's talked about how she went through this awful uh, end to her relationship while she was doing the movie and drew on that. So the story is there. And, you know, as much as there's a lot of BS around Oscar campaigns, I mean, this one has a ring of authenticity to it that also is combined with that, oh, I like that person. That person's been around a while. We should award that person. So there's a lot going on with Mudbound. I expect it'll get at least a good amount of nominations. Yeah, I do want to reiterate, though. Like, I I do think that, for me, this movie is more than just kind of, like, the vegetables of movies that sometimes get presented as uh, great for Oscars, right? I don't think that this movie is work. I do think it has blood in its veins. It's got... I mean, in addition to this massive scope, I do think it has a real sense of life and like kind of lived in quality to it. Um, and I and I think sometimes it like reaches a little further than it can quite grasp. Uh, but I, I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I would rather see something that's messy than something that's a little too kind of like trite and calculated. And I don't know. I, I think it's an impressive movie. The other thing that has to be pointed out is it's a it's a gorgeous film, and if people can see it on the big screen, they should. But even if they don't. Just make sure that the colors on your TV are right. Rachel Morrison would be the first woman cinematographer nominated for an Oscar, and there's a really powerful campaign there, which I think is really remarkable. But it, but it's also it's it's a movie that, in spite of the fact that it's not doing anything fancy, it's it's doing most things right, and it's so rare that we see that. Like you said, it's not work. A Moonlight was more work than this movie. That was a pretty astonishing victory that was driven in part by people mobilizing behind a movie they felt was doing something really remarkable and other people really wanting to reward 
a black film, a person of color, all the, all those kinds of conversations. So here you have that without feeling guilty if you didn't actually respond to the movie or if it did. You know, there, there's a. It, it's actually a movie that works for a lot of more people, I think. In, a, in more all, accessible. It's yeah. a more accessible movie. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think that. Uh, I, I just like with this movie, I worry a little bit that it because it falls into a fairly stodgy kind of type of category of movie that it will get dismissed because of that. Like I've seen people on Twitter say, oh, I'm so exhausted by movies of this type and by the kind of things they deal with. And I, I understand where that comes from, but I also do feel like it's not just an important with a capital I movie. Like it's a real movie, you know? Um, well, that is Mudbound from D. Reese. Uh, you can find it on Netflix now. I'd give it a pretty enthusiastic thumbs up. You, uh, you as well, you'd recommend it. Eric also gives it its recommendation. So definitely check that out. They work this land all they lie. I used to walk away from the fight. I know more. This land that never would be theirs. You don't need to go, Jamie. I can't stay here. They work until they sweat it. Everything okay? They sweat it until they bleed. Oh. They bleed until they die. Died clawing at the heart. Brown back. That would never be this. Well, that brings us to cue shots in which we offer some related films that are new to streaming or not even new on streaming. Uh, you know, I so Eric, I moderated a talk with Dries at IFP Film Week in uh, September. And at the end, it, I was mad because it had this perfect, wonderful ending for a Q&A, the very rare one, and then someone stood up and interrupted it. But before that happens, uh, the last question I asked was of a woman who was sitting in the front row uh, who stood up and she told uh, Reese that she had come from Paris just to see her. And it was, uh, Reese was like totally overwhelmed because it was Eugene Palsy, uh, the filmmaker's pioneering black female filmmaker. She just cited one of her films as an influence in the previous question. And then there she was in the audience. Uh, it was pretty amazing. Uh, and so I wanted, as we talk about work from uh, black women, to, for my first pick, pick one of Palsy's films. Uh, there are not a lot of them available for streaming. Um, not her first feature, which is the one that Reese talked about, uh, which is 1983's Sugar Cane Alley. Um, not The Killing Yard with Alan Alda, not the musical Simeon that she made, but the feature that earned her the designation of first black woman to direct a major Hollywood studio film is available for rent. It's A Dry White Season. Uh, it's not on Amazon or iTunes, but it is on Google Play and a few other places. Um, a Dry White Season is a drama about apartheid. Uh, it's set in 1976, though uh, in 1989, when the film came out, apartheid was still in place. Uh, and in fact, there was like it was a particular period of turmoil, and the film was initially banned in South Africa. The movie stars Donald Sutherland as Ben Dutoit, who is a former rugby star turned teacher at a white private school, and he becomes an activist accidentally. Really, um, he considers himself this upright member of the community. Uh, but has also kind of ignored these huge systemic injustices that are right in front of him. Uh, it's only when his longtime gardener, Gordon, who's played by Winston Nishona, uh, uh, comes to him because his son, whose tuition Ben has been paying at school, was beaten by the police for protesting. And at first, Ben doesn't believe him, or he says, oh, the police must have had their reasons. Uh, then the boy disappears into police custody and turns up dead. 
And then Gordon disappears. And then Ben starts kind of trying to figure out what happened to his friend and employee. And he starts to kind of understand the reality he's been blithely ignoring all of his life. Um, He comes into contact with a British journalist, played by Susan Sarandon. Uh, and he comes into contact with an activist lawyer played by this like wonderfully dissolutely jaded Marlon Brando who came out of retirement to play the role got an Oscar for it and then immediately turned on Palsy and said he didn't like her final cut of the movie the editing of the movie Um, so yes this is absolutely a movie about apartheid seen through the eyes of a white character Uh, something that would I think get a movie roasted today if it were to come out today but uh, I think Something that I think is pretty standout about A Dry White Season is that it uses this character and his kind of growing understanding uh, of of what the reality is like for a black South African um, as just like a vehicle. It doesn't treat him as heroic and it doesn't treat this as his story. It treats it more like as an ongoing story into which he gets swept up. Um, and it begins to cost him his family and his friends and the place in the community. And it's not particularly, the movie's not particularly patient with this process in which he kind of like, let's, essentially lets go of his privilege as a, a white South African. There's one point where Sarandon's character tells him, you know, just because you haven't seen it before doesn't mean it hasn't always existed, which is kind of a line for the ages in terms of of general inequality and injustice. Uh, And in another, uh, Stanley, played by Zake Smokai, who's Ben's driver, kind of calls him out when Ben says, I'm an African like you. I'm born and bred. I grew up, you know, barefoot in the bush, uh, playing in the bush. I ate African porridge. And then Stanley says, yeah, well, did you also get denied the right to vote? Did you also, you know, have your land taken away? And I I think there are ways in which this movie feels extremely modern in its treatment of this character. Uh, And and yeah, you know, while while Sutherland's good in the movie, it's Brando who's the really fascinating performance because he gives a performance of someone who has been fighting against a corrupt system so long that he's just kind of... He keeps trying, but has also almost has this like kind of apocalyptic who cares sense because he knows that the rules just keep getting changed no matter what he does. He's only in the movie for maybe 10 minutes. It's a courtroom scene, but he's really memorable in it. And not just because he's Marlon Brando. And even in late stages, later stages of his career, he was charismatic. But just, I don't know. It's it, There's something about it that combines like idealism and despair in a very memorable way. I'm confused, Mr. McKinsey. I thought that you had undertaken many cases and won them in support of human rights. No. You see, what you don't realize is that every time I, I won a case, they simply changed the law. So therefore, my considered counsel to you is to just simply chuck the lot. I shall find another barrister, and I shall prove you... Good afternoon, Mr. McKenzie. Please sit down, Mr. Dutoy. I will take your case. I will take your case if only to make it abundantly clear how how justice in South Africa is misapplied when it comes to the question of race. So that is definitely worth checking out, and I wish I could see more of her films. I'm definitely going to try to. It is a dry white season, and it is available for rent. So my first pick is a movie that 
more people should know about. And fortunately, thank God it's on Netflix. It's been sort of lost to time for so long, even though it was acclaimed at Sundance way back in 1991 and has the distinction, as, as people have said over the years, of being the first feature film directed by an African-American woman distributed theatrically in the United States. I don't know if that's exactly true, but uh, different people have opinions about that. But it's certainly an important movie for uh, African-American cinema and for American independent film history as a whole. And that's Daughters of the Dust. Uh, This is the first film from Julie Dash. Uh, It takes place in 1902. It tells the story of three generations of the Gullah. It's a family that lived on St. Helena Island, and they're preparing to go to the north, to the mainland uh, in the United States, uh, the beginning of the 20th century. It's in this really uh, kind of sophisticated Creole dialect. There's nothing compromising about it in the sense that, uh, one, it doesn't try to change anything about this culture to understand who these people are. It just kind of drops you into it outside of just a very quick explanation up front. And it has uh, this fascinating, poetic, lyrical style to its storytelling. The the voiceover is an unborn child, the kind of latest generation of, of the these women who lived on this island kind of looking back and exploring the the dreamlike element to their utopian life and the way that it sort of clashes with with the the harsh kind of almost terror of um, modernization of being pressured to uh, move forward to assimilate you know they they still live in sort of the the specter of uh, American slavery and there's this matriarch of the family who is constantly reminding them of that and um, the imagery of the movie, for the most part, these women are wearing these kind of white gowns billowing in the wind, is uh, so astonishing that it is a wonder it took so long for someone to bring it into the pop culture vernacular that we now have it in because Beyonce's Lemonade project uh, includes multiple references to this movie, presumably uh, because Beyonce was a fan, as, as many people have been. But uh, from what I understand, Julie Dash didn't even realize this was coming. So it's a little unfortunate that, that, that this wasn't capitalized on enough as an opportunity but to advocate. It was, I think. They ended up putting the movie... It was already planned to be re-released in theaters, and they moved that up because of Lemonade. Yeah, no, I mean, ultimately... Daughters of the Dust did benefit from this, and the the fact of the matter is that you know by being re-released by Cohen Media in the past year and put on Netflix, the movie does get it the sort of to inherit the historical place it should have had all along. So there was a good outcome from all of this, but I think what's really remarkable about it is it's a non-narrative movie for the most part. It's pretty much an experimental riff on what it means to be struggling with so many different generations of experience and on the one hand being a marginalized person and on the other hand being empowered by that same logic in the sense that these are people who have struggled and survived and so it's filled with all these monologues from women from multiple generations talking about essentially how they've managed to justify living another day and and continuing and and making this world that they have with all of its limitations into something uh, worthwhile and at the same time you have these other people who come from the mainland who are studying them and sort of trying to legitimize what they're saying but also represent a threat 
uh, the threat of losing everything that they're talking about, the kind of pure values that they've been able to cultivate in an environment that uh, doesn't have any, any sort of um, other outside forces to, to influence them. And so there's this palpable fear that kind of hovers throughout the film that all of this beauty that you're seeing could be lost in an instant. And presumably it is, right? I mean, there, there is this sense that only on this island could they maintain some sort of collective identity and that the mainland, which we never see, is, is almost the, this, this other world. And uh, what's really remarkable about it is if you look at a, the way a movie like Moonlight stood out to people, it was because it, it spoke to uh, a sense of alienation and otherness that people of color experience on a regular basis and that we usually don't see it in the movies. This movie does that too. And it does it in ways that are so haunting and beautiful because they bring you into the texture of the world. You know, you can just sort of sit with somebody and listen to them talk about, you know, how, how they've dealt with the powerful men in their lives, how they've dealt with racism, how they, they justify, you know, staying away from certain kinds of things. And uh, I just, I, I think what's really incredible about it is that from one point to the next, it never feels like a, a moment is wasted, and yet it doesn't build to any kind of sort of traditional payoff. It's not a traditional three-act structure. It's a lot of people sort of standing around on beaches talking, and um, and yet it's just haunting and impossible to, to look away from. So the thing that I think people should see Daughters of the Dust, first of all, don't re-watch Lemonade before you see it. <laughs> Watch Daughters of the Dust and then go back to Lemonade and you'll see how the DNA of that Move, the original movie is sort of channeled into what Beyonce is doing, which is another form of black empowerment, and I think it's communing with some of the similar ideas in this movie on a different scale. Yeah, it's hard to overstate just how beautiful this movie is. It really is like, uh, kind of achingly beautiful, without seeming like the beauty comes, or is a way of softening the sometimes intense pain these characters are talking about. Um, Alright, well, my second pick is, uh... A 90s movie. It's an extremely 90s movie, actually. The one thing about the way this looks is that it, it looks like um, a lot of other, uh, kind of from that heyday of the low-budget independent film days of the 90s. It is The Watermelon Woman, The Watermelon Woman on Fandor, uh, from Cheryl Dunier. Uh, so her 1996, kind of a landmark uh, of queer cinema, though I think it's one that also feels like it's gotten lost. It is not one of the more famous uh, lesbian films of that moment, though it has... Um, it has, I think, a lot in common with them. Uh, it it uh, Dunye stars in the movie herself as Cheryl, um, who has that most coveted of 90s jobs. She works at a video store. Um, she's also making a documentary about a black actress that she has spotted in multiple films from the 30s and 40s, often playing the, higher, uh, the help or, or a slave. And she's usually uncredited, or in one film, credited only as the watermelon woman, which is where the title comes from. And two stories kind of unfold in parallel throughout the film. Uh, in one of them, Cheryl's friend Tamara, who works with her and who's also black and a lesbian, tries to set her up on a date. Uh, but Cheryl instead starts this more complicated flirtation with a white customer named Diane, uh, eventually having actually it was kind of like a, a fairly famous sex scene with her in terms of the way it's filmed. Um, and then in the other story, Cheryl investigates the watermelon woman, finds out her name was Faye Richards, and that she actually was also a lesbian, and, and kind of dives into 
this uh, story about the early film and show business world and also the very complicated relationship that Faye may have had with her white female director. Um, and then about archetypes and about interracial relationships. And uh, this all sounds, I think, more academic when, uh, the way I'm talking about it than it actually comes in, is in practice. This is a pretty like warm and friendly movie. Um, there is an appearance from Camille Paglia, um, which is the most academic moment here. But it's not—it's not actually very theory-oriented. It's—it's a romantic comedy, sort of. Uh, it's and it's also this kind of funny and sophisticated interrogation of how sexuality, you know, is a touch point for these characters. Uh, certainly, it's their community. Uh, it's, it's their community, both in terms of friendship and in terms of, of possible romantic partners. Um, but how that doesn't make race or the kind of power dynamics that, that come with it go away. You know, uh, Cheryl's relationship with Diane uh, is is one in which they both like each other kind of instantly, but also there are increasing complications with regard to race, basically, and how that uh, affects either one of them. Uh, and I, I think the ways in which it leaves the movie leaves all of these things out there without kind of simplifying them into some easy answer uh, are really admirable and really feel, I think, kind of, you know, it makes the film feel very timely still, uh, even though it's now over 20 years old. Uh, I'm really glad this one is unstreaming. This is another film, like Daughters of the Dust, that I think, you know, was kind of a, a landmark of its moment, and then just didn't seem to be available. I, uh, you know, this film got re-released, uh, I can't remember who did it, but, like, restored somewhat recently as well, and it was put on streaming somewhat recently. And I think that uh, there's something that, that should be saluted about that, like because uh, you know a lot of these films. When you look at Eugene Palsy's films, and like so many of them are not available uh, digitally, it creates this kind of absence, you know. Especially services like Fandor that go out of their way to surface uh, movies from from all over the place. Uh, you know, it's it's worth investing in. So who's the cutie? Some customer. She's got a nice bone structure if you're into white girls. Do you think she is or isn't in the family? Tamara, why are you always constantly clacking women? We're lesbians, remember, Cheryl? We're into female-to-female -female attraction. Anyway, you're the one who's supposed to be clocking all the girls. How long has it been since you've been with one, anyway? A week. Remember the emotionally imbalanced event? Ah! Yeah, I mean, especially with respect to the history of queer cinema, I think it's in danger of getting lost because queer cinema is in the process of being normalized to some degree in our culture. I mean, it's sort of... that. It's a good and bad problem, a real mixed blessing in the sense that you have movies like Call Me By Your Name that are, you know, kind of approaching the zeitgeist in some level. I mean, people people don't have a, a problem with them. There's nothing subversive about them, and there's a more traditional kind of narrative structure in place. So we don't you don't necessarily have a movement of queer cinema. You just have queer movies, and they're not necessarily pushing buttons. I mean, that's what Moonlight was, too. Brokeback Mountain was... I mean, we're, we're in a different kind of stage for that storytelling, and it's easy to forget that what these filmmakers were doing, whether it's Cheryl Dunye or, you know, Todd Haynes or, or Tom Kalin, all these people in the 90s were really trying to figure out how do you represent queer stories at a point in time when nobody else is going to make them. And so to some degree, they were experimental and radical by necessity because they were trying to figure out how to 
find, you know, basically give these stories a place that was being underserved, and they didn't, they couldn't make them look like everything else because the experience wasn't like everything else. And so, Watermelon Woman is definitely a great example of seeing just how much that experimentation was necessary at the moment, and yet still winds up being a pretty good movie in other ways. It is definitely one worth checking out, as is your last pick, which actually just landed on Hulu, conveniently, for this conversation. So, my other pick is Whose Streets. It's certainly a timely documentary. It's a, it's about um, the aftermath of Ferguson, and uh, it has two directors. It's uh, Saba Folayan with a co-directing credit for Damon Davis, and uh, it, it sort of has this scattershot structure that captures all of this chaotic aftermath of Ferguson while very consciously going beyond the media narrative associated with it. So if you watch this movie without really thinking about how it's put together, you might think it's a bit messy, but there's no question that that's intentional and that the filmmaking itself is messy for reasons that make the filmmaking impressive. Uh, it uses so much amateur footage from you know protests right after Ferguson, following different kinds of characters in the immediate aftermath over the course of several weeks. Uh, it, it shows the, the way in which communities mobilize the creation of Hands Up United and the different kinds of characters who kind of came together to make that happen but you also get, I mean it's, it's almost like a, an action movie in parts, I mean you're, you get right up close to the action and uh, to see that and to see the kind of convictions that are driving not just the violence but the mobilization and the sense of empowerment, a couple of things going on there. One is when they cut away to the media reports, you, you really understand how one-sided it is. It's almost like seeing a picture and then stepping into that world. And, and that's what's so infuriating about it is that you understand how much Ferguson, even at a point in time when we still had this, you know, very eloquent black president that uh, American media did not know how to embody or explain the rage and the fallout of Ferguson. And the other thing that's really interesting about that, at least to me, is, is that you really start to understand uh, just how much this rage was percolating in our country a couple of years ago. Right, Because on some level what you're seeing right now after the presidential election is a form of mobilization for people who are worried about all kinds of civil liberties, you know, the Women's March, all these different kinds of things. And it's, it seems like a similar kind of process. You have this inciting incident, something really horrible happens, and people don't know what to do and they're angry. But in the process of finding like-minded people who are angry, they start to figure out a solution. And that sounds like such a simplistic thing. It's like we've unconsciously kind of absorbed the idea in our culture that, you know, protest is just something that happens, but it doesn't just happen. There's like, there, there, it, there's like a systematic process in which people mobilize and the way that they talk things through is, is really interesting because it ends up being sort of this uh, underappreciated collective response and what Who Streets does is it explains a collective response by jumping between different people. There's one guy who lives on the same block where Michael Brown was killed and there's no question that the closeness, the physical proximity to that event is part of what drives him to do that. You know, it's not like this was a guy who was unaware of racism in the police force beforehand, but something about the, the immediacy of that event, that it could have been him, it could have been people he knew, uh, drives him to action. 
and you see it throughout the the movie it's just a, the the way the amateur footage puts you there it allows you to understand the that that reaction in in a sense it doesn't look like pure mania and it's not that i felt like that when i first saw that footage but when i you know we first encountered uh ferguson as a media narrative i didn't quite understand how people mobilized in such a rapid fire uh, fashion and i think this movie does a good job of clarifying it and also explaining many other kinds of responses that are similar to that that have unfolded in the in the years since i think that there's something about this movie where uh it kind of calls attention to the degree that this ferguson was so highly covered by the media but also that it reminds you that simply parachuting into a community and pointing cameras does not give you the full picture and it really isn't affirmation of a documentarian's work in terms of understanding a community and being there on the ground and letting events unfold as opposed to piecing them together after the facts you know i feel like she captures so much because she's there uh and it makes this movie surprising and kind of very vital in a way that uh it shows you things that even if you were glued to the footage of ferguson you didn't get a chance to see at all um, yeah, so I would also recommend that one, Whose Streets on Hulu. Anybody growing up here, you tangibly know when you cross the county line, you got to drive a little differently. Your behavior changes because you know how policing changes. Ferguson police just killed a man in front of my apartment. People flooded in the area have some experience with police. Things have never been right for black folks in America. We're trying to mourn, and you came here with 300 cop cars, right? You're in canine units. You gonna shoot me too? But that ain't the story that you hear about. It is our duty to fight for our freedom! Well, now is the time in which we talk about some movies that are not streaming yet, that are in theaters, um, and maybe the movie that is the most in theaters. <laughs> after, after a long, long delay and a very... Troubled, fascinatingly troubled, actually, fascinatingly troubled production would be Justice League. Uh, Justice League, initially directed by Zack Snyder, who then had to leave because of family tragedy. Joss Whedon took over, uh, did a lot of reshoots, clearly kind of tried to lighten up the movie from this Zack Snyderian cynicism and darkness, but also uh, had to... computer-generated, you know, do some computer-generated removal of mustaches on Henry Cavill, who had already started growing facial hair for his next role. It should be a total mess. Is it a total mess, Eric Cohn? Uh, No, it's not a total mess. That's what's so (laughs) annoying about it. It's like, it's not messy enough to get by, and yet it's just not, it's just so underwhelming. It's it's got that been-there-done-there, paint-by-numbers formula that is an attempt in such an overly conscious way to emulate the formula of superhero movies that have worked. And DC fans don't like to hear this, but this is an attempt to imitate the Marvel formula in the sense that they're trying to to make a slicker, tighter movie and inject levity to it. And the levity is is so at odds with the way that this movie was initially staged. Snyder has a very kind of grim 
uh, palette and and style and the way that the characters have been established, at least in the movies leading up to this. Affleck's Batman, who's basically a statue, and <laughs> Superman, who's you know Superman, whatever. <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, is that character really so exciting in today's society? I mean, but we really have to think of that this from a historical standpoint. Well, I, this, I, like, I think that watching this movie, one of the things that it really reinforced is how what a struggle it is to deal with Superman as a character. Like, there's a reason they keep kind of like. Like having him go away and you know I don't this can I refuse to consider it a spoiler that Superman is in this movie he like Henry Cavill has been doing press for it forever he's in some of the posters but that like there's a reason I feel like there's a reason that like he's they needed him gone for a long time he's like this godlike figure it's really difficult to make a movie with him in it because there's so little kind of drama once he shows up yeah, there, there is this kind of interesting rivalry between Superman and The Flash that I thought was theoretically kind of funny, but again, just sort of shoehorned in there. I mean, there, there's so many parts in the movie where it feels sort of like, you know, you can see the template for it. You know, it's like, now they're going to have some banter, and then the stupid bad guy is going to show up for a while and ramble so about the old gods, and then they're all going to kind of fight for a while. And, the, you know, the camera work and the, the CGI is, is solid, there is a contingency of moviegoers who don't want anything adventurous who will think the movie is fine. It's sort of inoffensive and gets a little bit more Wonder Woman action in there, and she's the best part of the movie, I think, just because that character has been really well conceived. But it's, it's not enough to rescue it from this plodding sense of inevitability. I do think it's it's telling that the best parts of this movie are not about the two most iconic characters. It's not about Superman, who I, I think the movie continues to struggle with in its conception. Uh, and then it's not about Batman. I don't... Like, Ben Affleck just looks miserable. Like, he does not look like someone who really wants to be playing this character anymore. Uh, it's, yes, it's Wonder Woman, who actually seems to be having a good time. Uh, it's... Aquaman, who should not work as conceived, but Jason Momoa is so fun in it as this almost like drunken bro of a superhero that I, you know, it, it kind of worked for me. And and the Flash with Ezra Miller, just playing him as this kind of twitchy geek, I thought like it it worked. I mean, it, it's true. Like all of the levity in this movie is very like forcefully injected in and yet I think it says something that like it's the new characters who are quirkier and and weirder and less dour that are are kind of the, bring the most energy into the movie it's just I don't know it's all of these movies I feel like they're most interesting to watch as giant kind of corporate experiments you know they don't really quite feel like movies well you have to remember I mean corporations as much as they come up with certain kinds of agendas to make movies work there's something that's beyond their control which is the power that a brand takes on when it has a built in fan base and that's where these things started Superman represented something for our culture Batman represented something for our culture, and that explains their longevity. As we've said already, I mean, they're, they're, there's an argument to be made that they don't have the same currency they once did, whereas Wonder Woman obviously does. And I think you're feeling that tension in this movie between the kind of old world and new world order. You know, we want to see, you know, characters we've never seen before. We want to see them either, you know, empowering like Wonder Woman or scrappy and wacky like Aquaman, sort of pushing those kinds of boundaries and 
the problem is that with a studio product, there's only so much risk you can take. The, the reason why I think Marvel's done better with them is just because they've had fun with these movies from the outset. And that was sort of like this brilliant decade-long strategy by Kevin Feige to slowly assemble the Avengers with one movie after another that did recognize the levity of the universe. And when they finally came together in Joss Whedon's The Avengers, it was sort of the accumulation of not just these different stories, but the tone itself. And you don't see that strategy here. They've kind of rushed along to the finish line, and the movie reflects that. Yeah, and I think Marvel also, you know, while not perfect, took the pains to build these characters out as characters first, not brands. Whereas I think when you watch Justice League, you're like, Batman doesn't feel like a character. He feels like a brand. He feels like, you know, Batman, this kind of general pulling from different Batman uh, conceptions over the years to create this vague sense of uh, of this glowering Dark Knight character. Anyway, moving on quickly. Uh, speaking of corporate products, uh, this week also we got an, our we have another uh, product from one of the biggest uh, companies, and I think you know one of the most respected uh, brands out there in terms of children's entertainment. The new Pixar movie Coco. You have not seen this yet, Eric. Uh, I will say this. It uh, It is a beautiful movie, as is almost always the case for Pixar, and it is one that really, I think, explores a new type of world in terms of being both set in Mexico and then dealing with this uh, afterlife as, as based on kind of uh, Mexican beliefs and culture and the tradition of the Day of the Dead. That said, I, I do feel like this is kind of at best mid-tier Pixar. It felt like it was playing into a particular formula, uh, especially in the middle where, and I think Inside Out did this a little bit too, though I liked it. I thought it worked a bit better, you know, where it just feels like it's filling time by having characters do tasks like, oh, you have to go from this place to this place now, or uh, like it's it just, it doesn't feel particularly driven by story so much as the need to have some something bright and colorful happen. Um, so, yeah, I did not ugly cry in this one, as I have in so many other Pixar movies. Uh, but I think it's a perfectly nice movie that you, you know, you can go with your family to see on Thanksgiving when you can't agree on seeing anything else. Once every year, our ancestors come back to our world. Please have a safe journey. To see family <laughs> and friends. But no living person has ever visited their world until now well that brings us to behind the eight ball where we run down some new things to streaming uh and then give you some recommendations from you guys the listeners and then present one item selected blindly off of our netflix my lists to give you an insight into what we end up bookmarking and maybe never watching um, so I'm going to go first, Eric, uh, just to to show you how it's done. Um, first up on Amazon and Hulu is Allied, a movie I have a kind of soft spot for, actually. Uh, Robert Zemeckis' kind of romantic historical thriller from last year with Brad Pitt as a Canadian spy. Marianne Cotillard is a French resistance fighter. Uh, they start off with this terribly glamorous Casablanca mission, and then they try and lead a, a normal life, and then things all all go to hell. <laughs> um, not a you know not a perfect movie, but actually one I think was a little underrated. 
Um, that's Amazon and Hulu. New to TBS.com is Search Party. That's a TBS series created by Sarah Violet Bliss and Charles Rogers, who are the directors of Fort Tilden along with Michael Showalter. One of the shows I've heard a lot of good things about then never got around to seeing. So TBS is streaming it. You don't need to sign in. So they're just streaming it for free if you want to check out that first season before the second season starts. I think it starts this week. Uh, Aliyah Shawkat, John Reynolds, John Early, Meredith Hagner. I'm looking forward to watching it back when I can have some time to watch something for fun, which is maybe never from now. And finally, new to Hulu is their finest. Um... Before this, you know, the hottest, the hottest World War II evacuation of the year, Dunkirk. Uh, before this year gave us Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Uh, Joe Wright's Darkest Hour. It gave us Lona Scherfig's Their Finest, which is about how the British Ministry of Information made a movie about the evacuation in the midst of the war to boost morale. That is new to Hulu. So how about some listener recommendations? I've got two from Ben, who, uh, who writes in to say, one of my favorite things about Netflix is how many stand-up specials they fund and how many of them are allowed to break the traditional format of the classic stand-up special. Uh, he highlights two uh, for people who want a little something different from, uh, from their comedy. First up, Ben recommends Patton Oswalt Annihilation. Uh, he says, besides being my personal favorite comedian of all time, I was very curious about the stand-up special. It was the first one Patton had made since his first wife's sudden death last year. The first half is a pretty standard mix of Trump jokes and crowd work, but then 30 minutes in, it takes a turn. Patton talks in painful but still often shocking, fun- shockingly funny detail about the death of his wife and now raising his young daughter. It can be a difficult special to watch, and you will probably cry, but it's an amazing view of how comedy can be a healing force in a world full of tragedy. And then uh, the second recommendation is Neil Brennan, Three Mics. Brennan may not be well known uh, by name, but he's certainly made you laugh as a major showrunner, director, and writer on shows like The Chappelle Show and Inside Amy Schumer. Brennan takes a unique approach to stand-up where he's on stage with three mics. In one mic, he only tells one-liners. In the second, he does more traditional stand-up. And in the third, he is more of a storyteller going on about his life and work. I had no idea about this, and this is really fascinating. The three three styles not only show the different ways comedy can reflect a person's life, but in the evolution of stand-up, from pithy, quick one-liners to confessional emotional storytelling with jokes, it it also doesn't view any of the three forms as inferior or invalid, but rather recognizes that all forms of comedy have value in defining who we are and how we see the world uh thank you for those recommendations uh ben i don't think we talk about stand-up specials a lot on this podcast but they are obviously a kind of huge investment for netflix who have been like churning out basically sucking up every comedian working today and giving them a special um so thank you for that wow that sounds awesome okay so give me one film from your list on uh streaming all right you gave me number five uh number five is boys in the trees which is a movie that I'd heard of coming off of, like, it was uh, a few of the, I think, Fantastic Fest, maybe, uh, at the Overlook Film Festival. It's been at a few genre festivals. It's an Australian coming-of-age film uh, about two friends living in the suburbs that is apparently some indescribable cross between, like, teen movie and fantasy and horror. And I just it sounded, like, really interesting to me, and I was happy to see it turn up on Netflix, so I added it to my my list, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. All right, Eric, it is your turn. Are you ready? Okay, so three new releases. I got some good ones. Pick number one is The Persian Connection. It's available on Amazon. It's a neo-noir from last year, directed by Daniel Grove and co-written by its star, Reza Sixo Safai. You used to, by the way, do PR. (laughs) 
I was gonna say I was just saying that's an awesome name, but also he used to be a publicist, so you never know where these people are gonna resurface. And he plays an Iranian former child soldier who has to try to recover stolen drugs in the L.A. underworld. Pretty great sort of merging of of different uh, uh, settings and and uh, you know the genre and so forth. I think that that sounds like a, a really promising one. And that's on Amazon. Another one on Amazon is Landline. This is Jillian Robespierre, her second movie after Obvious Child. Once again, working with Jenny Slate. It's a cast with Edie Falco, Abby Quinn, and John Turturro. It's a 90-cent comedy about a New York family. It's a more traditional kind of ensemble drama than Obvious Child, but I think very confidently done. I like the movie quite a bit. It's uh, it, it's charming in a way, and, and, and it, it nails that 90s nostalgia without overplaying it. Um, it's actually interesting to compare it to some of the other more, you know, culturally relevant 90s movies and, and TV shows like OJ uh, the OJ Simpson show from last year that um, you know was I think really good but also so um, you know enamored of a certain cultural moment this movie is more playful and uh, kind of sweet and I think it does a really good job because it has such a, a terrific ensemble cast of um, digging into all their different kinds of dramas without overplaying them so the third one is The Dinner that's on Netflix this is from one of the most fascinating American filmmakers so unpredictable Orrin Moverman who made Rampart and The Messenger directs this movie starring Richard Gere and Steve Coogan as estranged brothers who gather for an increasingly tense meal with their respective wives played by Rebecca Hall and Laura Linney to discuss something that happened involving their two teenage sons. Now, the real revelation of this movie, just uh, it should be pointed out, is Steve Coogan uh, playing a dramatic role and uh, really not seeming like Steve Coogan in any particular way. Your your impressions of Steve Coogan have nothing to do with this movie. It's kind of like a middle finger to that. And it, and it is a really surprisingly dark twisted story in which the uh, future of all these characters is up in the air, a potential political scandal comes up. It's uh, it's very unpredictable. So so people should check it out and see the rest of Oren's movies, too. All right. Give us two listener recommendations. We got some good ones. So this one comes from at CatFindsFish on Twitter, which is an awesome handle. I, I like to find fish, too. <laughs> this caught me by surprise, but last Friday we put on Life, which is streaming through stars on Amazon. My husband and I both love sci-fi, but he loves really dumb sci-fi, and I thought this was going to be a win for him in that regard. When Life came out earlier this year, I remember thinking, A, what an alien ripoff, I thought that too, and B, that's too many A-list actors with one-syllable names for one cast, and the reviews were meh, true. So I was ready to be bored by some long monologues and dour but uninspired visuals. Well, opposite. I mean, it was kind of dumb, point husband, but in the most fun way possible. A much wilder ride than I expected with a very respectable body count. Now I'm wondering if I'm the only one who feels this way. Anyone else think life is an underrated sci-fi gem? Well, I didn't see it, so I guess I probably should. But I, I will say, I know I have not seen it yet, and it's one that's on my like catch-up list. But it's got some, it's got some fans. I think that people who are like, you just accept that it's derivative a bit of Alien, and then, but it's also, I don't know. People have talked up the the deaths to me a lot that they're pretty imaginatively gruesome. Well, that's the thing. It's like 
is it an alien ripoff or did alien kind of create this subgenre of sci-fi horror that is just not exploited enough you know maybe there's a there is a refined way to pay homage to what alien does well so i'm going to keep my options open and see that one and then the second recommendation comes from robin a longtime listener from brighton in the uk very cool after listening to the cannibalism movies episode number 148 i thought i'd write in with a recommendation for parents 1989 directed by bob balaban better known for his acting role in Close Encounters and Moonrise Kingdom. Parents is a great little black comedy set in the 50s about Michael, a boy who begins to suspect that his parents, played with Juicy Gusto by Randy Quaid and Mary Beth Hurt, are not getting their meat from the local butchers. The film contrasts the bright colors of 50s suburbia with the genuinely frightening undercurrent of Michael's fears and nightmares in a way that reminded me of Blue Velvet. Very interesting comparison. There is some particularly good use of jaunty music and some quite disturbing lingering shots of unidentifiable cuts of meat being prepared. (laughs) Lots to enjoy here. Yes, if you enjoy that kind of thing. (laughs) You can rent it on on Voodoo in the U.S. or from Amazon in the U.K. Bon Appetit. Yeah, I remember this movie traumatizing me when I was younger. I've never seen this movie. It's it's pretty dark and twisted, but you don't expect it. You don't see it coming. With Blue Velvet, it's sort of like it's obviously tearing apart the American suburban mythology from the outset, Mm -hmm. you know, within the first two minutes or something. This one sneaks up on you and then gives you nightmares. All right, give me one from your Netflix My List. So on my Netflix queue, this thing has been sitting there for three seasons, is Narcos, uh, the uh, Colombian drug cartel story. Uh, I'd spent a lot of my childhood in Colombia. Uh, have my families from there, and this was in the kind of moment of transition after all the drug cartel stuff was sort of receding to the background. But what's interesting about it is as much as... Uh, it is overplayed to some degree you know i had to deal with people saying oh you must know a lot of cocaine dealers and i was like no actually it's like a very sophisticated metropolitan city bogota or whatever but in the escobar years (laughs) this was a real problem and there is it is part of the history of the country and from what i understand narcos really digs into that and gets a lot of it right so i'm keen on checking it out someday so much tv so little time Uh, All right, well, that brings us to the end of this episode, this extremely tropical-ish episode of Film Spotting SVU. Um, Eric, thank you so much for joining me and taking time off from beautiful weather and your duties at the festival to to talk with me. Uh, Can you tell people about where they can find more of your work? You can always find me at IndieWire.com. Follow me on Twitter at Eric Cohn, and you'll see a lot of the recent stuff I've done there. But check out IndieWire as a whole. I'm really proud of what our team is producing these days. And you can listen to Screen Talk with me and Ann Thompson. It's it's a little more unwieldy than, than this established podcast. We just kind of bicker about stuff, but that's what's fun about it. So, so it's kind of a, an insider film industry podcast, but we try to open it up to people. So check it out, Screen Talk on iTunes. Uh, and meanwhile, filmspottingsvu.com is where you can find the Filmspotting SVU episode archive and as well as a link of uh, a list of direct links to all the titles we've discussed on each episode. Uh, the Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we'll be back in two weeks uh, with technology willing a special live episode featuring the long absent matt singer and two of the hosts of the flop house podcast uh they're doing a live show as we're recording this they're going to be doing it tonight in brooklyn so should that recording work out we should be able to give you a glimpse into what it is like when flop the flop house and film spotting svu come together and become flop spotting svu yes in the meantime you can find us on twitter i'm at allison wilmore eric is at eric Cohn, and please follow the show 
at Filmspotting SVU. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. I'm Eric Cohn. Thanks for listening to me ramble. 